Amen. You can take a seat. Thank you. Thanks. Appreciate it. Man, praise God. Praise God for, uh, for what he's doing and what he's going to do. Um, yeah, this morning, as, as we sing that song and as, as Nick shared, we, we are going to be looking at the sovereignty of God this morning. We're, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Genesis 42. Genesis 42, we are beginning kind of our wrap-up of the book of Genesis. We've been, uh, we've been here for quite a while just looking at the introduction of God, looking at who God is. And, um, and, and this morning, as we, as we start this wrap-up, we're also wrapping up the, the narrative of Joseph. This, this super familiar story that, that hopefully as we've gone through this, you've seen that, oh, there's, there's more to this than just his coat. There's more to this. There's, uh, there, there's background and there's family history and there's all, all of these different things that, that go into this story. And as we, as we look at this story this morning, my prayer for us is that we would see God's sovereignty as we think about who is God. We would see his sovereignty shining through. And, and kind of the big idea for this morning, if you, if you have your Bibles, if you have your pens, and there, there's actually a place on the back of our announcement sheet uh, this morning, if you want to take notes, you can do that. But if you're, if you're taking notes, what I want us to, to get and walk away from is that living in light of God's sovereignty changes the way we live. Okay, Living in light of God's sovereignty changes the way we live. Now, when I say sovereignty, that's kind of a word that we don't use a whole lot, but sovereign, uh, by definition, literally means possessing supreme or ultimate power. So when we think about God being sovereign, we're talking about a being who holds ultimate or supreme power. And when we think about God's sovereignty, it should change the way we live. It it reminds me of uh, last year, my family and I, we kind of became puzzlers. Right, and I, I guess I wouldn't say that. It's, we do puzzles. I don't know if I would take on the identity of a puzzler. I'm, I'm not that big into it. Okay, um, but but we we started putting puzzles together when it's cold outside and uh, there's not a whole lot else to do. So we, we got into puzzles, and and my daughter she she got a puzzle from somewhere that it was a unique puzzle, in that when you put it together, then you color the puzzle. Which is a really cool idea, but when you start, you have a bunch of pieces that are just black and white. Which is an ideal for putting together a puzzle, especially for a novice puzzler. Um, and and so, so that was one difficulty. The other difficulty with it was it wasn't like a clear picture, like, oh, we're going to be putting together a picture of a horse or a fish. Like, it, it wasn't that. It was just abstract shapes and, and all these different things that, you know, hopefully when you get it all together, you can color and it'll be pretty. But... But that was frustrating, and, and like the straw that broke the camel's back with this puzzle was the fact that when we began to put it together, there was no picture of what it was supposed to look like on the box top, which I don't know, maybe you guys, have, have you guys put together puzzles? Yeah, okay. So when you put together a puzzle, what do you look at? The box top, right, Some, one person is with me, all right? You, when you put together a puzzle, you look at the picture on the box top, and you try and figure out, okay, what, what is this supposed to be? The picture on the box top brings order and hope to the chaos in the box, right? And so we started putting together this puzzle, and, you know, we're not animals. We, we, you, you get the edge pieces together first, right? That's how you do it. You, you get all the edge pieces together, you put it, and we finally got that figured out. And this is like a 500-piece, so not crazy, but at the same time, like, 
We have no idea what this thing's supposed to look like. There's no colors to guide us. There's no, there's no clear picture. And there's no picture on the box top to help us understand the chaos in the box. And so we, we would, you know, you, you take pieces and it's like, well, I think these look like they go together. And so you kind of, you know, like if you're like me, you get to a point where you're just like, you put them down on the, and they don't quite fit. So you just, it's like, they, they see they fit, you know, and, and like you, you kind of come to it. And every now and then you find some pieces that kind of fit and it kind of starts to make sense. But then it just gets frustrating because there's no, there's no hope that what's in this box is actually going to come together. Because there's no picture that gives you that hope, that gives you that direction. And so pretty soon, the, all of the puzzle is just like, I just kind of got to this place where, you know, anger management. I just like, you know, took it all off the table, put it back in the box, put the box in the trash, and that was the end of that puzzle. But you see, the reality is sometimes I think that's the way our lives look. You know, our, our lives at times can look like just a, a bunch of pieces that don't necessarily seem like they fit, that, that you know, we're trying to figure out where is this going, why, is thing, why are things happening the way they are, why, and we try and, like, mash the pieces together at certain times, and at certain times we get glimpses of, like, oh, that's why that went that way. Oh, the, oh, oh I, I see now. And yet, at times, most of life, I feel like it just looks like a puzzle with no box top, with, with nothing to, to give us hope and direction with the chaos that we're, that we're looking at. And yet, when I look at this story, when I look at the narrative of Joseph, especially where we're at in the narrative, it seems as though God's sovereignty, his, his understanding that he is the one who holds supreme power and authority, is the box top to help us understand the chaos in our lives, Right? So what, what I want to do this morning, we're looking at 42 through 45, so it's a big chunk of Scripture. And so, so some of it we're going to fly over, some of it we're going to go in depth with. I would encourage you, though, like, spend some time in this, in this section of Scripture. Spend some time with it. If, if this is your only interaction, praise God, you're here. But I would encourage you, go back, read through it, because there are some things I'm just not going to hit on this morning. Because, again, what we're looking at is how God's sovereignty, if we live in light of God's sovereignty, it changes the way we live. Let's, let's go ahead and read, though, starting with verse 1 in chapter 42. If you're there with me, I'm going to start reading. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? He said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Okay, let's just stop there real quick. Uh, give us some context where we're at. Uh, last week we, we, we talked with Todd, Todd about how uh, we see Pharaoh had a dream, and, and there was this dream that, that he, Joseph... Uh, through the power of God, was able to translate for him, interpret. And, and it basically, God was saying, hey, there's going to be seven years of plenty where the grain's just going to come in and, and everything's going to be awesome. It's going to be, it's going to be great. And then after that, there's going to be seven years where there's going to be famine. And the famine's going to be so bad, you won't even remember the good years. It's kind of like when it gets cold outside. I don't know if you're like me, and I'm walking the dog, and it's like, I can't even remember being warm. Like, it's, it gets so cold. No? Okay, me. But, but that's, that's where they're at here. It's about a year into this famine. 
then the famine is so great that it's reaching Canaan, which is north of Egypt by quite a ways. All right, and, and so I, I love it because we see the humanity in Jacob. He looks at his sons, his, his ten grown adult sons, and he's saying, why are you looking at each other? It's like everybody is like, what are we going to do? I, I don't know. We don't have anything to eat. It's like, it's like when you look at your kids, it's like, it's about time for you to get a job, right? You know? and, and so he's looking at them, and he's saying, all right, like, I hear there's grain in Egypt. Go, get some grain. But he doesn't send Benjamin. Now, again, we're reminded as the authors writing this, we're reminded that this is not just a standalone story. This is a story that we've been following and narrative we've been following for quite some time. And there is so much messed up family drama that's still continuing in the story. And so I believe what Moses, the author, is doing here is he's saying, remember who we're dealing with. Remember, remember that, that there's a lot of favoritism. There's a lot of stuff happening because, because Jacob, or Israel, he sends his sons, the ten, and he's like, I don't want to keep this one. If you all go, you know, what, I, I mean, I, I would be sad if I didn't see you guys again. But Benjamin, no, we're not, we're not sending him. So he sends them out. They go to Egypt. Verse 6, now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land, and Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers. Second time, says he recognized. Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you're spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We're all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies, which it's laughable that they describe themselves as honest men, right? If you've been following us through this up to this point. Verse 12, he said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you've come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph, the one that they just said is no more, but Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this, you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. Let's, let's just stop there. So, so we have Joseph's brothers coming to Egypt because they're trying to find food so that they won't die. They come in. Who do they see but Joseph, this governor of Egypt. Now, now we get to have a unique view of this story. I don't know if you've ever looked at it this way. But, but we get to see all the parts. We get to look at it from a perspective, like a God view, you know, God perspective, where we know what's happening. We know that it's Joseph who's talking to them. They have no idea that it's Joseph. And so they come in, right, and Joseph recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. It's been, it's been 22 years since they've seen their brother. And the last time they saw him, if you remember, they, he was 17 years old. They were throwing him into a pit because they were so angry with him. They were so jealous 17 years old, they throw him into a pit, sell him into slavery. Now, 22 years later, he's 39 years old. They come in, he recognizes them, they don't recognize him. And yet it says, right after he recognizes them, did you catch that? It says he remembered the dream he had about them. Do you remember the dream that it's talking about? If you remember in chapter 37, Joseph, the 17-year-old boy, has a dream 
that one day all of his brothers would bow down before him. That his whole family would bow down before him. And what he got for his dream was he got sold into slavery. What he got for his dream was hatred and uh, persecution. What he got for his dream was to be, to be wrongly accused of, of sexual misconduct. What he got for his dream was 13 years in prison. And yet what we see right now is he's coming to a place where God is fulfilling the dream that he gave him 22 years ago. See, I think that's a beautiful picture because it, it reminds us, if you remember, I've been talking a lot, but if you remember, the, the main point of what we're looking at this morning is when we live in light of God's sovereignty, it changes the way we live. You see, when we live in light of God's sovereignty, God's sovereignty has something to say about our current situation. God's sovereignty has something to say about our current circumstances. Because here's the reality. We have promise after promise after promise from God in Scripture, don't we? We have promise after promise. I, one of my favorite ones is Jeremiah 29, 11, where it says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you future and a hope. We, we have promises where Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And yet at times, we come to places in our story where I don't know about you, but it feels as though we are left and forsaken. We, we come to places in our story where, where it, just, it just feels as though it, we're just looking at a box of chaos and there's no box top to help us understand that all of this someday will come together and all of it someday will, will be made into a beautiful picture. And sometimes it just feels like chaos. And I don't know about you, but there are times where, where it feels like I just, want to, I just want to shove this puzzle off the table and I just want to check out and say, you know what? If this is what it means to be a Christian, I'm out. If this is what it means to live life, I'm out. It's too hard. It's too much. There, there is too much fear. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Guy, like literally, I, Keaton and Sierra just had their little baby, such a, a beautiful little baby girl. And my wife and I, we got to go over last night and uh, just holding her and, and leaving there. I'm trying not to get emotional. Leaving there, I was reminded of when we had our baby girl. You know, and just thinking about, you know, when, when you have a baby and there's so much hope and there's so much, you know, thoughts about future and plans and all these different things, and then sickness enters the picture. And then it's, it's like all your hopes, all your plans, everything you thought was going to happen isn't. And all you're left with is chaos. And all, all you're left with is these unfulfilled dreams that's like, well, now what? Now what, God? I thought you were going to be with me. I thought you were going to help me. You see, the reality, though, is if we truly believe that God is sovereign, if we believe that he has ultimate power and authority, I believe in that, that he is doing things that we cannot see yet. That, that he is good in the midst of our chaos. Right? That he is good. And, and just because we're in the middle of our story doesn't mean we're at the end. I, 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 heard, a, I heard about this book. I don't even, I'm not endorsing it because I, I just heard the title. I don't even know what it's about. But the title of the book is uh, They All Die at the End of This Book. That's the title. No idea what it's about. But I got to thinking about that book and I was thinking, you know, if I'm reading a book that's, that the title is they all, end, they all Die at the End of This Book and I'm at a, a point in the book where people are still alive, my guess is I'm not done reading. It's, 
leave it for a second. Let that sit. Right? Some of you, some of you are still not there. It's okay. It's okay. See, I think that at times when we have promises of God, we get in the middle of our sermon and say, this is too hard. And yeah, I think the reality, when we live in light of God's sovereignty, that has something to say about our present circumstances. And if we're not in a place where we feel like God is with us, then I think that means that our story's not over. It means that we need to hold on. It means that we need to keep going. Because it took 22 years for these dreams to come to fruition for Joseph. And I'm not sure where you're at in the midst of your story, but God is faithful. It, it, let's, let's just keep going, all right? There's, there's a lot to get through. So we see that, that he comes, he, he accuses them. Now, the reason he's accusing them, it's, I, you know, there's a lot of things we could say about this, but it appears as though Joseph now is in a position where he can, he can get revenge on his brothers. But if you believe that, that doesn't, that doesn't hold true to his character that we've seen so far. I think what we're seeing is Joseph doesn't know what kind of men he's dealing with. It's been 22 years. They didn't have Facebook back then. You could Facebook stalk and see, like, hey, how y'all doing? Like, how's mom and dad? And all. They didn't have that. He doesn't know if Benjamin's still alive. He doesn't know if his dad's still alive. He doesn't know if these guys are, uh, have changed at all. And so he begins to go through these things to kind of try and figure out what he's dealing with. And in verse 9, it says... Um, Sorry, I had to turn my page. Verse 17, verse 18. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your household. And bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning of his blood. So who they're talking about is Joseph. They're they're remembering back 22 years. They're remembering, didn't he beg us to have mercy on him? Now, Now his blood is upon us. And there's a reckoning In verse 23, they did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for their journey. This was done for them. Verse 26, then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? What is this that God has done to us? Guys, when we live in light of God's sovereignty, here's the the second thing I want you to, to write down. When we live in light of God's sovereignty, God's sovereignty has something to say about our sin. God's sovereignty has something to say about our sin. You see, these men, in this moment, they, they're in a really difficult situation where it appears as though there's no reason that they should be accused for spying. They're just doing what their dad said. They're coming into this situation, and yet what is the first thing that, that comes to their mind? The first thing that when, when they get out of that jail, incidentally, most likely this is the same jail that Joseph spent 13 years in. They spent three days in. When they get out, what do they say? 
this is because of Joseph. This is because we sinned 22 years ago. You see, the guilt of their sin was still heavy upon them. The guilt of their sin, you see, the reality is God is sovereign. He has supreme authority. And he does not allow us just to sweep our sin under the rug and forget about it and move on. He doesn't allow that because he is a good God. And he wants good for us. He wants us to flourish. And he knows we can't flourish when we have unconfessed sin in our lives. In fact, Psalm 32, David writes this psalm when when his sin with Bathsheba came to light. He says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through the groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Have you guys ever felt that before? Where you have stuff in your life, you have sin in your life that is unconfessed, that that has not been brought out into the light. And David says, when that sin was still in me, it it was like my bones wasted away. It was like my, my, I had no strength. I was, I was lost. You see, God desires flourishing for each and every one of us, and that comes through confession. Uh, um, when I was, when I was uh, working with my uncle quite a few years ago doing construction and carpentry, um, I, I don't know if I told this story before, but I'm going to tell it again. I, uh, I, I was using a nail gun, and, and it was a nail gun I hadn't used before, and uh, it was a pass load nailer. I don't know if that means anything to anybody. But uh, I was up on a ladder. We were, we were um, doing some remodeling on this office, and so I was nailing up these nailers. We were going to put sheetrock in. So I was up on a ladder, and I had this block, and I was going to nail it to the stud. And, and I, I pushed the gun in, and I had the thought up on this ladder. I thought, you know, I don't really know where the nails come out of the end of this gun. Oh, well. I pulled the trigger, and all of a sudden I felt, boom, right on my hand. I, I, I don't really know what happened after that point, but I, at some point, I look at my hand, and these are 16-penny nails, and this nail is sticking out of my hand about an inch. Is that an inch? I don't know. Uh, about that far. And so I get down, and I'm on top of the ladder, and I have that feeling. You ever have that feeling where it's like, I just did something really bad? Like, <laughs> I just hurt myself really bad. And, and I, I climb down off the ladder, and I'm just kind of standing there looking at it like, this isn't real. And um, my, my friend who was working with me, he runs over. He says, what'd you do? And I, I just kind of went like this. <laughs> and he says, hold still. And he runs over to his tool belt. He grabs his pliers, runs over, and he, he goes like this. I said, you're not touching me. And I, I back away from him. Right at that moment, my uncle comes walking back in because he had run some errands. He comes in, and I just imagine what the scene must have looked like. My friend's standing there with pliers, and me standing there like this. And we both just kind of look at him, you know. And, and he says, get in the van. And so he took me to the emergency room after sitting there for what seemed like hours with his nail sticking out of my hand, uh, painkillers, x-rays, all that stuff. The doctor had to find a tool strong enough to, to pull it out. My dad held me down. They ripped that nail out, and... It hurt a lot, not going to lie. But what, what would have happened what ha- with all that story? What would have happened if the doctor, you know, he, he comes in and he says, you know what, we've, we've taken x-rays. The bo- the, it's not in any bones. It's, I understand it hurts, but you know what? It's going to hurt a lot to come out. So you know what? What, what we're going to do is we're just going to leave that in there. We're just, it, I know it's going to be inconvenient. I know that uh, you're going you're gonna to have to watch it. I know that, um, you know, putting sweaters on, might, you might want to, you know, 
think about investing in vests or something. But, uh, and it's going to be tender. But you know what? Just don't let people touch it. Don't let people come near it. If you do anything that, that aggravates it, stop doing that thing, right? And, and you'll be fine. You'll, you'll get used to it. See, that's ridiculous, but we do the same thing with our sins in our lives, don't we? We do the same thing with the sin in our lives. Something happens to us, and, and, and maybe it's by our own will or somebody else's, but something happens to us, and, and this sin enters our lives, and yet instead of confessing it, instead of, instead of surrendering to the, to the power and authority of a God who saves, instead of doing that, because it's going to hurt, because we don't know what it's going to look like for that sin to come out and for that sin to, to, to come out into the light, we allow it to stay and fester. We allow it, and if anybody gets close to it, then we react and say, whoa, 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 wait a second. Maybe you're feeling that right now. Where There's stuff in your life that you've allowed it to remain, and anytime somebody talks about it, anytime somebody gets near it, you feel that tension, you feel that it's, it's just tender. You see, the reality is if we live in light of God's sovereignty, God's sovereignty has something to say about our sin, and years will not help that. Years will not heal that. Years will not take away the guilt that you feel. Only a Savior who is powerful enough to take your sin will do that. Amen? And yes, it hurts. And yes, there is brokenness. And yes, it's hard. And yet, a God who is that powerful is a God who, when that comes out, he is a God who can bring healing and restoration into our lives. He's a God that, that he's that sovereign. Let's, that's what they needed. And so they're in a place right now where there's nothing to do. They, they just feel this guilt. They just feel all this fear. They, they feel these things because they don't have any place to put their sin. They, they, don't, they don't know what to do with it. And so they, they go home and it, they, verses 29 through 35, they basically are just telling their dad, like, dad, you'll never guess what happened. Simeon, he got thrown in jail. All the, like, he, they just recount everything. And then in verse 35, as they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If, I har if harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with, with sorrow to Sheol. Now, now, again, to feel the whole impact of this, we need to understand that there's a lot of family dynamics that are happening. You need to go back and read like the, all of the, the Jacob's wives and the children that came from that. He, he's basically saying, look, Joseph, my, my, my favorite son, Joseph was the only true brother of Benjamin, born of Rachel, Jacob's most favorite, most loved wife. And, and Joseph, to his understanding, Joseph's dead. Joseph's gone. And he's saying, you want to take Benjamin? No. Nah. No, Simeon. I, I, I don't know if you notice that, but he says Simeon's gone too. It's like Simeon's not gone. He's just in jail. But to him, he's like, nope, nope, Simeon's dead. Why? Why does he do that? Because what he is called on to do in order to see Simeon released from jail, he's saying, I am unwilling to walk down that road. 
I'm unwilling to do what you say I need to do in order to see my son set free. You see, here's the reality. Another thing we need to know about God's sovereignty. When we live in light of God's sovereignty, God's sovereignty has something to say about our sacrifices. Right? God's sovereignty has something to say about our sacrifices. You see, from our perspective, we know that God is doing something in this story. God is working to bring restoration. God is working to bring this family back together. We've read it before. We know what's going to happen. And yet, Jacob, in the midst of this, all he can see is that his son might be taken. His son might die. And so he holds on to him tight. He says, I don't care. I don't care what you say this will bring. I don't care about the restoration that might happen. I don't care about the fact that Simeon might be released. I will not let this go. See, when we understand that God is the one who's writing our story and he's the one who has supreme power and authority, we can say things like Paul says. We can say things like Paul says when, when in Philippians 1.21, he says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, just a few chapters later, verses 7 through 8, he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. What is he saying there? He's saying all of the things that I've had, even my life, I'm going to hold like this. I'm going to hold with an open hand. You know why? Because I get Jesus. I'm going to hold all these things. I'm going to hold my future with an open hand. I'm going to hold, I'm going to hold my, my job with an open hand. I'm going to hold my finances with an open hand. I'm going to hold my relationships with an open hand. I'm going to hold my, my sexual activities with an open hand. I'm going to hold all these things open-handed because I want to just hold tight to Jesus. I want to hold tight to God, and I want to hold tight to his power, his authority in my life. You see, what, what Jacob was doing was he was saying, no, I'm going to hold on to my son. I'm going to hold on to my son because I don't know what God's doing in this. I'm going to hold on to my son because I don't know what the future is going to hold. I don't know what all those things are going to hold. But I know if I just keep him close, then at least I'll have something. You see, when, when we look at God's sovereignty and we, when we live in light of that, it changes the way we look at our sacrifices. It changes the, the way we look at the things that we're called to give up to have fulfillment in God. Right? And so, I mean, the story doesn't end there. They're still in the midst of the famine. Chapter 43, verse 1, Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, now Judah comes into the picture. Judah said to him, the man, Psalm, talking about Ju, uh, Joseph, the man solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send your brother with us, our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you do not, if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. I love, I love where it seems like, like Jacob is saying, all right, we're out of food. Just, just go. Like he's trying to brush over what's happening. Like, he's, like if I just don't acknowledge it, it's not a thing. Right? But Judah steps up and he says, look, no, that would be a suicide mission. You're putting all of our lives at risk if we don't take Benjamin. And I love where in, in verse 9, or verse 8, And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me. 
and we will arise and go that we may live and not die. Both we and you and also our little ones, I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. You see, we see in this, we see uh, just a type of, of Christ. And we see this all throughout the, the story. We see this all throughout Genesis. We see foreshadowings of what, what we see about Jesus. And in this, we see Judah in the midst of a really difficult situation, in the midst of imminent death, in the midst of starvation. He's saying, let me stand in the gap. Let me get, put your trust in me that I will bring your son back to you, that I will restore life to this family. Put your trust in me. And it seems like that must have worked for Jacob because it says, all right, then their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present. He's saying, all right, if it must be so, then, then it must be so. But take a bunch of stuff with you to try and, try and make this a little bit easier. So they took a bunch of, I love that it says even pistachio nuts. It's like, hey, they loved pistachio nuts even back then, right? I, right? That's, I, I, I don't know why I find that humorous. But they take all these things and they go back to Egypt and it says, I'm, I'm, we're not going to read it, but 15 through, 30, through the end of the chapter, they, they come in, Joseph sees them, he sees Benjamin and, and he tells his servant, he says, hey, prepare a meal for us because I want to feast with these guys. And so the guys, the, his brothers and Benjamin, they're brought into his, his chambers, into his house. And, and can you imagine the, just the, uh, how crazy them, this must have been? The last time they were there, they're accused of, of being spies and they're thrown into jail for three days. And now they're brought into this governor's inner and, and they're saying, oh, he's going to attack us. He's going to kill us. He's going to do all these things to us. And yet at the at Basically, by the end of the chapter, it ends with them saying, and they drank and were merry with him. They were taken care of in the midst of this. I mean, just, I think if we put ourselves in their shoes, the, the roller coaster of emotions that these brothers must have been feeling, right? And so, so they eat and drink. Joseph takes care of them. They're provided for. There's a lot of really interesting stuff in there. And then chapter 44, it's not done yet. Then he commanded the steward of his house, the servant, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of a sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. He's basically saying, make sure they know this is a big deal. Like this is, they've really messed up. Verse 6, when he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from you, your servants, to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servants, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Now, I love it because they, they, are, so, they are so certain that they don't have that cup. That they, they overstate their case. Have you ever done this where it's like maybe you're so certain about the lyrics of a song and you're like, no, it's, it's like a, just like a nightwing dove. Like, like, no, it's not one winged dove. It's night, like a friend of mine did that once. It's like, I bet you five bucks it's one winged dove. And it's like, no, it's this. It's, you know, and they overstate the case. And then, and then the, I love the, the servant. He says, 
whoa, 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 wait, nobody needs to die here, guys. Just calm down. But, okay, if it is found, we take the one whose cup the, the sack is in, we, we take that one into slavery, and the rest of you are free. The rest of you are innocent. Like, fine, fine, search us. So immediately, immediately, it says, Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. Can you imagine the feeling that they must have had? They just overstate it. They're saying, kill whoever, and then it's in Benjamin's sack. They tear their robes, which is, a, which is an Old Testament representation of just despair. Like, we, we're done for. There's nothing else we can do. And it says, they, they, every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. Verse 14, when Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you know that a man like me can, inter- can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah, verses 18 through 34, basically Judah is recounting their whole, their whole encounter up till this point. I, lo- I love it because what this shows is uh, by, by the agreement that they had struck, who was guilty, who was, a, who was supposed to be a servant to Joseph, to this officer of Egypt, who, who was guilty? This is for you to say. Huh? Benjamin, I heard the Benjamin, and nobody wants to answer. Benjamin is guilty, right? It was found in his sack. So according to the agreement, Benjamin is now a slave to Joseph. But they don't know it's Joseph. Who comes back to Joseph? It's not a trick question. Who comes back to Joseph? Everybody, right? I don't know if that's what you said, but every, you're right. Everybody came back. All right, this, shows, this shows the change of heart that these brothers had. It shows that they're saying, no, we don't, we're not going to leave our brother. Judah especially, he comes in and he says, no, I made a, I made a promise. I'm going to stand in the gap. But you can't do anything to him that you wouldn't do to me. Let me take on the guilt that he has for himself. Let me do this. You see, they, they come in all together. They don't just abandon their younger brother. They come in and they plead before Joseph. And then chapter 45, verse 1, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence, I bet. I mean, can you imagine they come into this this man's house, they plead with him, and he makes everybody leave. If I were in this situation, I'd be like, man, we are going to get beat, right? Everybody leaves. And then he starts weeping so loud that people in other houses hear it. That's crazy, right? I don't know if they're in like a duplex where it's just thin walls or what, but everybody hears it. Pharaoh hears it. I don't know where they're at, but they hear it. And then he says, I'm Joseph, bombshell. Like, uh, they, they, they're just like, I don't know what to do with this. And then it goes on, and verse 5, or verse 4, so Joseph said to his brothers, come near me, please. And they came near him and said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. 
For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all of the land of Egypt. Let's just stop there, okay? When we live in light of God's sovereignty, that's what we're talking about. When we live in light of God's sovereignty, God's sovereignty has something to say about the grace we show to others. God's sovereignty has something to say about the grace we show others. See, in the midst of this situation, Joseph is telling his brothers, he's saying, look, you did this, yes. And it was wrong, yes. And it was sinful, yes. And yet God is doing something that you don't understand. When you understand that God is the one writing your story, when God is the one who's in ultimate power and authority, then the people who come against you, we can see that in a different light, right? It reminds me of when, when we drove up to Minneapolis when uh, my daughter had her kidney and liver transplant. I don't know how many years ago. It's been a while now. Um, but we were, we were on our way. We got the call. We jumped in the car. And I have never driven so fast for so long. I mean, it was super fun because, I, I mean, I just floored it. And, and we were driving around cars and uh, on the interstate, and we were just flying. And there'd be, there'd be times where, you know, one car would be passing another car, and they weren't going very fast. So I would just fly right up on them, and then they'd get over, and we'd fly around. And I kept thinking, what are these people thinking that we're passing? And we thought about writing a sign that said, sorry, we're driving so fast. We're on our way to Minneapolis for our daughter's kidney and liver transplant. We thought about writing a sign, but then we thought, you know, I'm driving too fast for them to read something like that. So, so, so we just kept going. And, and I'm sure the people in those other cars must have thought, how reckless. How, how dare them do this? How dare, they do, how dare they break the law? How dare they be so reckless? How dare they do those things? And yet the reality is when, when I was in that situation, I realized, you know, there, there might be something more going on in other people's lives than what I know. You know, I, I realized in the midst of that, now when people fly around me, I mean, I still get a little upset. But there is a part of me that says, you know what, I don't know what's happening in their life. I don't know what's going on there. You see, when we, when we take a step back and when we understand that God is actually the one who's in power and authority, then we can step back and you say, no, there's a bigger picture here. I don't, I don't necessarily have to come to my own defense I don't necessarily have to run down that person next to me. I don't necessarily have to, have to defend all the time. I can step back and say, you know what, God, you're in power and you're in authority. And it gives us grace for those around us. And the last thing, though, that I want to look at this morning is the fact that when all this happens, Joseph says, I'm your brother. He, what does he say? He says, don't be angry with yourselves. The last thing he says, he says, I want you to go back. I want you to get our dad. I want you to come here because the famine's still going to be, it, it's going to be hard. There's going to be a lot. Pharaoh gets involved. He's like, what was that crying? And they're like, oh, here's the story. Here's the situation. He's like, oh, yeah, bring him back. That'd be awesome. So he gets involved. But then as they're going back home, verse 24, it says, then he sent his brothers away. And as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel along the way. Do not quarrel along the way. What he's doing there is he's saying, look, you guys are forgiven. I forgive you. You are forgiven. And he says, walk in the forgiveness that you've received. You see, when we live in light of God's sovereignty, God's sovereignty has something to say about our salvation. God's sovereignty has something to say about our forgiveness. You see, and I think oftentimes what we do as Christians is we live lives of, of defeat, we live lives where we say things like, well, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. 
yeah, that's true. Or we say things like, you know, Christians aren't perfect, they're just saved. Yeah, that's true. But at the same time, I think in that, our focus gets on the, the sin that we've been defined by, not by the forgiveness that we now have received. Right? He tells, he tells his brothers, he says, go back, go, but don't quarrel along the way. Walk in forgiveness. Walk in, walk, walk in what you've been given. See, with us, we have verses like Romans 6, 6 through 7, that says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. We've been set free. Paul says again in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. What does that say? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Guys, when, when we look at this, when we look at, at Christmas, when we look at the story of Joseph, when we, look at, uh, when we look at who Jesus is and what he came to do, in the same way that Judah became a pledge for Benjamin, and said, you know what? I will stand in the gap for him. I will bring him back to you, our father. I will, I will restore him. In the same way that Judah stood in the gap for Benjamin, we have a savior who stands in the gap for us. And he is a savior who is sovereign to bring us forgiveness, to bring us freedom from our sins, to make us new creatures and new creations in Christ Jesus so that we don't have to walk around being like, well, you know, what am I going to do? I can't, I'm bound by this sin. What am I going to do? I clicked on it again. What am I going to do? I, I lied again. What am I going to do? I, I mean, just, this is who I am. No, that's not who you are. Right? That's not who we are. We are saved through Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection. We are saved and we can walk in that salvation because we serve a God who is sovereign. Amen? So this, here's what we're going to do now. We get a chance to respond. We do this almost every week here at Anthem Church. We're going to take communion. And, and for you, this morning, as we take communion, there's stations set up around the room. There's gluten-free in the front. What we're going to do as we come to the communion table is we're going to take a piece of bread, which represents the body of Christ, which was broken for you. And we're going to dip it in that juice, which represents the blood of Jesus Christ, which was poured out for you so that we could be reconciled to our Heavenly Father. And what I want you to do this morning is you, as you approach that communion table, if you are in Christ, then this is for you. If you have been saved through Jesus Christ, this is for you. And as we go to that table, I want you to ask yourself, what does it look like for me to live in light of God's sovereignty this morning? What does it look like for you to, maybe you're in a situation right now where all you see is chaos. Where you're looking at a box of pieces that don't make any sense, and you don't feel like there's a box top, and it's just chaos. Maybe that's you this morning. I would encourage you this morning. I, I, I would ask you and say, God, I give this to you. Maybe this morning you're still walking around with a nail sticking out of your hand. You're still walking around with sin in your life, unconfessed. Your, your bones are wasting away. You have no strength. I would encourage you as you come to the table, receive the forgiveness that, that is offered through the body of Jesus Christ. Maybe for you, you have, you have things that you feel like you need to sacrifice. Maybe for you, you need to show grace for others. Maybe for you, it's just so hard for you to walk in the reality of your forgiveness. This morning, as we go to the table, I would encourage you and say, God, you are sovereign. And here's what that means for me. And as I take this, and as I remember your body, which is broken, and as I remember your blood, which is poured out for me, I also remember that you are sovereign.
I give myself over to that sovereignty. Let me pray for us. The, the band's going to come up. I'm going to pray. And whenever you're ready, whenever that time comes, whenever you're ready, I invite you to come up and take communion. God, we praise you and I thank you for your goodness and your mercy. I praise you for the story of Joseph. I praise you for your sovereignty. I praise you for the reality that we can walk in, that you are in control, God. That you are all powerful, that you, that you, God, you have saved us. You have offered us salvation. And God, if there are people in here who have not received that yet, God, I pray that this morning they would receive it. And as we celebrate Christmas time, God, I pray that you would help us to remember that you are the one who, who you're the one who is the pledge for us. God, in the same way that Joseph's family was restored, God, you are working in your sovereignty to restore us. And so, God, I pray that you would help us to surrender this morning, whatever that might be, whatever fear, whatever sin, whatever thing we're holding on to that's not you, God, I pray that you would help us to open our hands this morning and receive you. We love you, God. We praise you, and it's in your name. Amen.